3: September 23rd, 1983, the date of one of the most infamous concerts in Washington, D.C. rock history. Of course, none of the kids lined up outside the Landsberg Cultural Center knew it at the time, but expectations were high. The atmosphere was electric as doors opened. The concert was meant to be a unifying event for two of the district's most provocative homegrown musical acts. Minor threat, standard bearers of the city's exploding hardcore punk scene, and Trouble Funk. Master practitioners of Go Go, DC's home take on funk that fired up crowds with deep grooves and long call and response sections. Both scenes were also known for their opposition to conformity, to authoritarianism, and to racism. And both scared the absolute shit out of DC's upper class. These two forms of music holding truth to power in 1983 is the perfect way to count us in even if the show didn't go as planned. Symbols of democracy pinned up against the coast, outhouse of bureaucracy surrounded by a moat. Citizens of poverty are barely out of sight, the overlords escaping in the evening with people of the night. Morning brings the tourists, peering eyes and rubber necks, to catch a glimpse of the cowboy making the world a nervous wreck. It's a mass of irony for all the world to see. It's the nation's capital. It's Washington, D.C. Gil Scott-Heron. Washington, D.C. is a city built from the ground up for a specific purpose. On July 16, 1790, none other than George Washington signed into law the Residence Act. The act decreed that in 10 years' time, a new city would be built along the River Potomac to serve as the permanent seat of the government of the United States of America. And who would build this new capital city? Washington went to work at once surveying the land, but of course, he didn't build it. Paris-born engineer and Revolutionary War veteran Pierre-Charles Lafont, the most French name ever, drew up the plans. He picked the locations for the President's House, the White House, and the People's House the U.S. Capitol. But he didn't actually build them, of course. Not long after Washington and his Frenchman engineer built up the plans, the real workers entered the scene. We don't know most of their names. They were all poor. Many of them were black and many of them were slaves. That's right, in case you did not know, slave labor was used to build our country's symbol of freedom. The work that started back in 1790 got a serious slowdown when British troops briefly took Washington, D.C. in the War of 1812 and burned government buildings throughout the city. When the British were pushed out a few days later, I'll let you guess who was left to do the repair work. By 1830, proving that hypocrisy has no bottom, D.C. served as a major hub for the slave trade. Just blocks west of the U.S. Capitol, countless families are ripped apart and shipped to brutal plantations throughout the Deep South, and it wasn't until 1862 that slavery was officially abolished in Washington, D.C. This was D.C.'s beginning. It's really no wonder that D.C. is a city of contradictions. There's the symbol of freedom, the people's voice, and then there's the reality of the city built on a swamp, stuck between two states with none to call home. The district is the place where some of the most powerful people in the world go to work, where our laws take root, where corruption is more embedded than bedbugs in Paris, but also where hope can always be and must be rekindled by those who can cut through the muck, the mire, and the mazes. In other words, the perfect Petri dish for some of the most fierce and fiercely independent musicians in America. And it's a good thing that they're there, keep an eye on the upper crust, to call bullshit when they see it, to sing it in a song that lasts longer than a term. Because even if it takes the rest of us a while to catch on, sooner or later, we are all singing the same tune. You are listening to Sound of Our Town, a podcast about the music that shaped the city you are touching down in. It is also about being present to hear and experience its best music happening right now and what sounds and places have shaped the city's culture. It is about the abiding ritual of getting together in a room to listen and why that matters. This is the Anti-Content Podcast because it is encouraging you to ignore all the other content and get out there and participate in the sounds being created around you. In this season two of Sound of Our Town, I'll introduce you to the real places and sonic stories echoing in a particular city so that your travel and your life is enriched with music. I am your host, Will Daly. I'm an independent DIY songwriter and touring artist. I've been doing this a while, and frankly, this show is a reminder to myself how important live music is to our existence. The business of it kicks you around, but the crowd never lets you down when you come with the truth. And in this episode, we are sprinkling some truth on Washington, DC. Walking in the margins, that's how DC's musicians have operated for decades. Whether it was in the smoky after-hours jazz clubs like the Crystal Caverns where DC's own Duke Ellington used to hang out after concerts, or basement-level listening rooms like the Cellar Door, a dank 130-person basement club that hosted iconic solo performances from Neil Young and served as the meeting place for legendary harmonizers Emmylou Harris and Graham Parsons. So who are some of the other musicians and artists who have operated in the margins of our nation's capital? Duke Ellington Barty Strange Bad Brad, Minor Boy Threat, Threat Boy Marvin Gaye Boy Chuck Boy Brown Boy and the Soul Church, Church, Danny Gap Dave Grohl Fevery Corporation, Henry Raw Fugazi Fugaz, Walter Martin, Martin John Fahey EU Rare Essence Trouble Funk, Genuine Rites of, Spring, Rites of Spring Ted Leo and the Pharmacy Ameri The Dismemberment Mary, Plan Jawbox Pussy Galore Girls Against Boys Hot Tuna, Pot Tuna Lou Harris And the OG hitmaker John Philip Sousa Being on the outside looking in is tough, but sometimes it can make you resilient. Despite the brutality of Washington, D.C.'s slave trade, there was a strong free black community even before the Civil War. And in 1867, Howard University was founded and became a beacon for a thriving African-American business class. The federal government, which had spent the last century denying their rights, was suddenly, thanks to federal pay requirements, an attractive employer. U Street was nicknamed Black Broadway for its number of Black-owned theaters and music clubs. The city became a hotbed for R&B and soul in the 1960s, nurturing homegrown talents like Marvin Gaye. And by 1975, the authority of George Clinton dubbed DC Chocolate City in Parliament's album-length tribute to the nation's capital. It was around this time that local artists like Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, Trouble Funk, and Rare Essence began developing a new style, one that would keep the dancers going and going on the dance floor. So they called it go-go music. In addition to drum kit, Go-Go features, congas and hand percussion all working together to create a deep, deep pocket. Over the top of all this, singers fire up the crowds with call-and-response chants lifted straight from the gospel tradition. The sound was so frenetic and fierce and funky that it quickly captured the ear of the city's white and black residents alike, and Go-Go began to reach beyond the river and fill up venues like the Fame 930 Club. The crowds, the energy, and the noise of the intense rhythms were too much for the upper crust. Go-Go became the scapegoat for the street violence and drugs that were prevalent in the district in the 1980s. And within a decade, nearly every Go-Go venue and event were pushed out of the city. At nearly the same time, Hardcore's music slam-dancing mosh pit culture was starting to provoke a similar, although less intense, response. House shows and underground venues were shut down. It is sadly a fitting symbol that two of Washington, D.C.'s most celebrated homegrown music cultures were largely pushed to the side by the turn of the century. Of course, musicians, as always, have found ways to carry on in the margins. So let's explore some of the spots fighting to keep Washington, D.C.'s music culture alive and hold truth to power. Our first stop in D.C. may surprise you. It's not a grand historic building like the Howard Theater. It's not a rock club like Pearl Street Warehouse. At first glance, the corner of 7th Street Northwest and Florida Avenue is nothing special. But the seeker of good music knows better. Underneath the street sign for 7th Street is another sign marking the block as Chuck Brown Way. Named in honor of the originator of go-go music in DC. Your basic strip mall style cell phone store called Central Communications sits at the corner. Surrounded by high-rise buildings and other gleaming signifiers of gentrification. Inside, in addition to cell phones, the owner, Donald Campbell, sells go-go tapes and CDs. Outside, a loudspeaker pumps go-go music all day, in and out. In 2019, the music was almost halted when nearby residents complained about the volume and T-Mobile representatives asked Donald to turn off the music. Longtime residents revolted and began a protest campaign called Don't Mute DC. For days, they gathered out front of the store to blast go-go music, dance, and voice their frustrations at once again, DC's homegrown culture being pushed aside in favor of the interests of the wealthy. The movement gained national attention, and eventually, the CEO of T-Mobile had to intercede to say Central Communications could continue to play go-go music. A nearby luxury apartment building, The Shea, has an 80-foot mural featuring images of Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers and the Junkyard Band, another early Go-Go group featuring kids from the nearby Berry Farm projects, all of them in the mural playing homemade instruments in a joyous tribute to Go-Go City. Meanwhile, over the past four years, Don't Mute DC movement keeps going strong to support local arts, music, and community in the district. Do not silence the people. And don't silence your own city's art. You will miss out on your own legacy. To stand at the spot of the mural is to bear witness to a time when locals stood their ground and refused to be drowned out. It will set the tone for everything we're going to visit. So buy a go-go tape and bring some of that same don't-mute-DC energy to your local arts community. And if all this music talk has got you jonesing for a show, right around the corner is DC9. An excellent independent music club where you can see rising local and touring acts almost any night of the week. The Kennedy Center. It opened in 1971. It's the National Cultural Center of the United States. In a very real way, it belongs to you, to me, to all of us. If the U.S. Capitol building is the people's house, then let's call the Kennedy Center our living room. And Wednesday through Sunday, we are all invited to hang out in the living room free of charge. The Millennium Stage, a 235 person performance space in the Kennedy Center's ornate grand foyer. Launched in 1997 as part of a Performing Arts for Everyone campaign. And to this day, it holds free concerts at 6 p.m. every Wednesday through Saturday. You can catch everything from soul singers and country crooners to symphonies and hip-hop MCs. And you can see them just steps from where Beyonce paid tribute to Tina Turner and Hart made Robert Plant cry with a stirring rendition of Stairway to Heaven backed by gospel choir and string orchestra. The only catch? The performances may be free, but they can fill up fast. You have to register in advance at theKennedyCenter.org to ensure yourself a seat. Otherwise, you'll be stuck like the rest of us, streaming the performance from the Kennedy Center website. Going back to the 1960s folk music boom, there have always been a handful of historic listening rooms in the D.C. area. Like the iconic Cellar Door, which hosted pivotal solo concerts by Neil Young, as well as Emmylou Harris, whose partnership with Graham Parsons began with an impromptu duet at the club for a rumored audience of six people. We've all been there. I don't mean at that club with Graham Parsons and Emmylou Harris. I mean performing in front of six people and it being legendary or a legendary feeling. Today, the Birchmere in nearby Alexandria, Virginia carries on this listening room legacy with old school charm to spare. The rules are simple in this table service music hall. No standing, no smoking, no recording, no talking. It's been that way since 1966. Because they put the music first, musicians keep returning here long after they would have moved on to a bigger club. All except Ray Charles, who played his final concert here on July 20th, 2003, before heading off to that great gig in the sky. You can feel the venue's history as soon as you walk in the doors as hundreds of framed concert posters and artist photos cover every square inch of wall in the long, low-slung entryway. And with more than 50 years in the business, it's the little things that continue to make the Birchmere great. From the hand-painted backdrop behind the stage to the hand-drawn portraits that decorate the monthly concert calendars, the human touch is infused with everything. Maybe that's why it draws DC elites looking for authentic connection including Bill Clinton, who slipped out of the Oval Office more than once to see artists like Jerry Jeff Walker at the Birch Mirror. Inside, you'll have an old-school music supper club with modern-day sound and lighting. Seats at the venue are first-come, first-served, so plan accordingly, and if the show is full, be aware you may find yourself sharing a table and quite possibly meeting your new concert buddy. There is no current music club in Washington, D.C. more steeped in history than the 930 Club. Originally opened in 1980 by Doty, DeSanto, and John Bowers as a tiny 200-person club at the now legendary address of 930 F Street. More on that in a minute. The club set up shop in 1996 at its current location, 815 V Street Northwest, in a larger 1,200-person space. The venue has hosted countless legendary artists from Patti Smith to George Clinton to Bob Dylan over the years. But they've continued to provide an important outlet for local artists as a critical venue for DC's hardcore and go-go bands. From the iconic 930 Club Cupcakes served backstage to the wheeled stage that can be moved forward and backwards to create the perfect room for any audience size. It's a venue where music and musicians are revered. My first show there was opening for the hippie regalness of Queen Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. You know going in at 9.30 was the ideal room for a special show. The people expect the best on that stage. It means something to be on that stage and somewhere in that chemistry you find your best self standing up there. In May of 2023, IMP, the promoters behind the 9.30 Club, the Anthem and more, announced a new performance space next door to the 9.30 Club. 450-person space called the Atlantis is meant to evoke the vibe of the club's original location. It opened 44 years after the original with an audacious run of 44 concerts from artists like Jeff Tweedy, Foo Fighters, and DC's go-go pioneers Trouble Funk. Much like the larger 930 Club, it features a wraparound balcony above its small dance floor. So although it's tight, there are great sight lines everywhere. Much like the larger 930 club, Black Cat is a long-running DC music club with a pedigree. It opened in 1993 with an initial group of investors composed of musicians like Virginia native Dave Grohl, who got to start drumming in DC hardcore bands. Bands like Morphine, Rancid, and Stereolab helped christen the new space, and since then everyone from Beck to Jeff Buckley to The Roots have graced the stage. The 800-person independent club revels in its old-school rock and roll charm. We're talking black and white checkered floors, coin-operated pinball, a sound system that has no respect for your tinnitus. If you don't like it, tough. Sure, some might say the black and white checkered floor is too dated, that the music is too loud, the lighting is too dark, but earlier this year, Black Cat celebrated 30 years in business with a concert lineup featuring local greats like Hexx and Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. And when you've outlasted gentrification, COVID closures, and Ticketmaster, so far at least, for 30 years, It's safe to say that you're doing something right. So drink your tall boy, pop a quarter in the pinball machine, and ignore the haters. When you're at the Black Cat, you're here for one reason only, and that's to get your face absolutely melted. When looking for a musical feast, you might be surprised to find out that one of DC's best hidden gems is also one of the city's best places for pie. Pie Shop DC is a labor of love for owner and pie maker, Sandra Basanti. She and her husband, Stephen McKeever, opened in 2010 as a way to help pay the bills while playing in local bands. The menu is divided between sweet and savory pies with everything from sour cherry to mochella, a chicken pie whose name is a hat tip to the DC Grassroots Go-Go Music Festival. The real treat, however, is upstairs on a tiny stage that McKeever built by hand. In a room holding only about 70 listeners... Crowds gather around whiskey barrels to hear up-and-coming bands play one of the district's most intimate venues. A true hidden gem.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills
1: and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's anabe dot Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply.
4: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other
3: D.C. is home to a number of travel-worthy festivals, from the D.C. Jazz Festival to indie rock-favored All Things Go at nearby Meriwether Post Pavilion. But if you're looking for a chance to hear some echoes of the past alongside glimpses of where the district's music is going, mark these days on your calendar. If you are itching to experience the down-home comforts of the Birchmere, be sure to check out the venue's annual tribute to Hank Williams on December 29th. You'll get to hear some of the district's best folk and acoustic performers like Jake Blount, Robin and Lucinda Williams, and many more pay their respects to Hank nearly 70 years after he was found dead in the backseat of a car just a few hours south of Bristol, Virginia. For a taste of DC's go-go heritage, keep an eye out for the surprisingly robust summer concert series at Martin Luther King Jr.'s Memorial Library. 2023 concerts feature bills like Go-Go Pioneer's Trouble Funk, teaming with up-and-coming hardcore bands and a nod to the intertwined history of Go-Go and hardcore. The library also houses a permanent Go-Go and DC punk archive on the fourth floor where you can check out old fanzines, ticket stub, pictures, recordings, and more. And if you are looking for one of the biggest Go-Go gatherings in the country, then pencil in next to August 19th as DC pays tribute to the originator of Go-Go, with the 10th annual Chuck Brown Day. This free outdoor concert brings together DC go-go lovers for a full day of music from the genre's originators and innovators every year at Fort DuPont Park. That's a pretty full calendar. Prepping for a trip to DC. Whether you've just booked tickets to see your favorite band at the 930 Club, or you're looking for some counter-programming to a day full of historic sightseeing, to learn more about DC's music culture, I recommend you check out the documentary Salad Days, A Decade of Punk in Washington, D.C., which you can find streaming. Or the great book by Natalie Hopkinson, Go Go Live, The Musical Life and Death of a Chocolate City. Of course, reading about music is sort of like dancing about politics, so direct your ears to classic Go-Go albums like Trouble Funk's Drop the Bomb or Chuck Brown and the Soul Searcher's Bustin' Loose, both of which have been sampled by dozens of hip-hop hits over the years. For a taste of DC's Listening Room legacy, be sure to put on Neil Young's Live at the Cellar Door. It's an incredible document of the legendary performer trying out new material in a beloved listening room. And for hardcore... I could go on for days about this band, but if you're going to start with one album, it should be Fugazi's Repeater, or Fugazi's End Hits, or The Argument, or In On The Killtaker, or Red Medicine. But what am I talking about? Just, Just start with 13 songs. 13 songs. Look at that record. You start there. Start at the beginning. Ian McKay and company go on an absolute tear in a punk landmark that inspired hundreds of alternative bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam that would follow in their wake. And those those things should keep you going, get you ready for your time in Washington, D.C. So that concert, with Minor Threat and Trouble Funk at the Landsberg Cultural Center, that was supposed to be the moment that brought scene unity, that pulled together disaffected teens both black and white, that would bring their movement to a whole new level. Anticipation was high as Trouble Funk burned through a set including their signature song Drop the Bomb. It had the room bouncing, energy was pulsing, everything was coming together. Now, in their day, Minor Threat got crowds fired up by playing faster, louder, more aggressive, and just playing better punk rock than just about anybody else on the East Coast. They did it without drugs and alcohol, as they famously expressed in the song Straight Edge. And they did it without major labels, instead releasing music on their own label, Discord Records. But when Minor Threat took the stage that day in 1983, and singer Ian MacKay launched into the first song, fans could tell something wasn't right. The rhythm was off. MacKay moved around like he was in a trance. People in the crowd began to jeer between songs. Suddenly, the night that was supposed to propel DC's music to a new level was stopped dead in its tracks. And Minor Threat would never perform again. In the following years, police cracked down on go-go shows and punk rock house concerts, scapegoating them for an uptick in violent crime. But it often feels like you just can't have people uniting too much. Especially if two types of voices from seemingly alternate universes start to find harmony. The music was pushed out of the city or even further into the underground. And an opportunity had been missed. Or at least that's what it seemed like. Funny thing, even as DC was doing its best to push out the artists for calling bullshit on the rich and powerful, the rest of us were just beginning to listen. The emotional style of Rites of Spring which became a guiding light for emo. And then there's Fugazi, the band Mackay formed after his disastrous Last Minor Threat concert. And he brought in Rites of Spring lead singer Guy Pacito. The band was a huge influence on many, including a young Kurt Cobain. Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder described seeing them as life-changing. And through Discord records, Fugazi sold millions, turned down huge offers from major labels, and created a fine, wine music catalog built on sonic exploration via punk from the heart, while speaking truth to power. At very nearly the same time, while DC's police department's crackdown on Gogo had pushed the music almost entirely out of the city, the sound was resonating with up-and-coming hip-hop beatmakers looking for infectious energy and deep grooves. Producer Pharrell, who grew up in nearby Virginia Beach, took his love of go-go even further when he used a sample from Chuck Brown's *Bustin' Loose* as the main backbone for mega-hit *Hot in Here* by Nelly. And over the last two decades, go-go music has started to belatedly get the recognition as a musical innovation that it deserves both locally and across the country. And in 2020, Mayor Bowser signed a bill into law designating Gogo as the official music of Washington, DC. In the end, it's truth and great art that tells the story of being here. Those are the factors that always remain. The American legacy of music is steeped in it. It just may be our greatest export. And one more thing, I was in Kansas City, it was the day after a show, and I was wandering around. And as often happens, I gravitated towards a local independent record store. And I was immediately taken in by a wall of t-shirts as my eyes caught a black one on the bottom shelf with a simple statement on the front. Fugazi is my Beatles. It struck me right in the heart. There is a part of my development where Fugazi was the mind expander. I was present for the release of their Mighty Career wrap-up albums and hits in the argument. So should I get this shirt? I don't really need a new t-shirt. I don't need to spend money on the road, but I do love Fugazi in a different way than I love the Beatles. And I love this Mighty Bull t-shirt statement with just the right touch of cheeky. And then I imagined myself walking around with this fighting words kind of statement on my chest. And I just didn't think we needed another take another bold statement that really doesn't help anyone's situation in any way. If I wore this shirt, would I then have to make a series of TikToks advocating for this position, you know, and then say, leave a comment below and let me know what you think and other bullshit. Then all of a sudden I'm the Fugazi is my Beatles TikTok guy with a hardcore following and so many people hating me and loving me. And that becomes my life. And I don't really need that. I imagine myself walking down the street, getting dirty looks, engaging in debates that don't need to happen. We have enough takes. Enough unnecessary debates. And speaking of Washington, D.C., division is an economy that doesn't need my participation. I love Fugazi. I love the Beatles. And they didn't have my size. Well, thank you for listening to our episode on Washington, D.C., Sound of Our Town, Season 2, Episode 8 eight episodes already in season two four more left three cities in a special bonus episode what um, would really help us get those other four done and get a third season would be if you follow this wherever you get podcasts and if you take a second to write a review wherever that is that is actually how podcast babies are made um, for when you're ready to tell the kids how they're created Sound of Our Town is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. It's executively produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. Audio engineering by Matt Bowden. It's produced, written, created, scored and spoken by me, Will Daly. We met earlier. This episode's head writer is Patrick Coleman. I did the music in this episode. and If you want to hear more of my stuff, we well, just got to find a place that streams music. I heard they're out there. And if you spell my name correctly, Will that's spelled daily d-a-i-l-e-y you'll be able to hear more of that music and i'm always out there playing somewhere and i hope it's make it to your city so i can play there so i can cover it for an episode and until then thank you for your ears
4: infinity presents a new chapter in luxury